This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Hello, good afternoon to you. Have you put much thought into your on-farm emissions and how you might reduce them? Would you consider changing up the fertiliser you use, for example? There are pre-coated fertilisers which could reduce emissions. They are more expensive than others, though. So what would it take you to make that switch? 0448922604. Let me know this afternoon, what would encourage you to switch your fertiliser to something with a smaller carbon footprint? Is it money? Is it quality? What would change your practices? Let me know this afternoon. We'll talk about that before half past 12. And have you had a good wine recently? I've got a lamb ragu on the oven at the moment. That'll be paired with a good red tonight. But if you're a wine lover, you will want to keep listening because the Sydney Wine Show has just announced its list of best wines from the 2022 vintage right across Australia. And there might be one or two from right here in WA which have made the cut. We had a beautiful, pristine, sparkling, this lovely, complex, yet restrained Chardonnay, and then this wonderfully fragrant, silky Pinot Noir. And I wasn't really sure which way all the judges were going to vote, and it was it was relatively tight across all of those. But this year it's gone to the... Oh, no, you're going to have to keep listening to find out which one it went to. The best wines of the year coming up for you on the Country Hour. It's 7 past 12. Concerns are growing about the health of China's economy amid increasing evidence that a deep downturn is underway. But it's not necessarily bad news for Australian exports, particularly in the red meat sector. In fact, China has imported almost 50% more red meat in the first half of this year compared with the same time last year. Meat analyst Simon Quilty believes the situation has a number of parallels with Japan in the 1990s. I guess what we do, we look back at history and say, well, where else or has this occurred before? And Japan is the one that jumps out at us. And during the 90s, that period of slow economic growth in Japan became known as the lost decade, where um, GDP growth over 10 years was only 1.3% per year. So yes, it's, it's to Japan we look as guidance to what potentially could happen in, in China going forward. And what did happen during that period in the 90s when it came to Australia's red meat exports? Well, interestingly, even though it was challenging for other sectors, such as the mining sector, um, for the Australian red meat industry, in actual fact, over that 10 years, volumes doubled out of Australia and prices by the end of the decade were up 40% Nat. So what was you know, seen as problematic for others, known as that lost decade, I would almost call it the found decade in terms of the importing of meat and, um, and Japan really, I guess, falling in love with not just Australian but US beef as well. That when you pull apart why, I guess, consumers really adopted or, or took on Australia's meat, there were some key things that happened at the time. One was that 
Japan truly invested in Australia during the 90s, in which a third of meat processors in Australia at the time um, were foreign-owned, half of which were Japanese. But more interestingly, half of our feedlot se sector was owned by the Japanese. So that kind of created this pipeline of product going into uh, Japan at the time. They call it the boomerang effect, where investments overseas, they really encouraged them to go back to Japan. And we were the beneficiaries of that. But I think, Matt, the most crucial thing that happened was that when you had such a sharp decline in housing values and share prices, household savings were not required. And so therefore they took those savings and maintained their level of, of you might say, a standard of living of which imported beef was a huge part of that. And I think today we could argue the same in China, where household savings are like 30%, one of the largest in the world. If I'm in Australia's red meat sector and I'm seeing these headlines of China's economy slowing down and the Aussie dollar starting to slide, how do you think I should interpret all this, Simon Quilty? Matt, I think that what it tells us is that at first glance, you would be somewhat nervous about whether we're going to have ongoing demand and, and requirements out of China going forward. And this is why it's so important to go back and look at history and say that in actual fact, during these difficult times, um, the demand for food continues no matter what, but other parts of the Chinese economy and sector, such as you know the building industry, is going to suffer but we're going to get the benefits of a falling dollar. And so much of our currency is tied at the hip with the mining sector, the value of iron ore, and they are likely to fall if the experts are correct. So we kind of get the best of both worlds, Matt, where we have a falling currency that makes us incredibly competitive in the agricultural sector, but also because of the need for food that continues no matter what, and potentially that household incomes will be re-diverted towards you know, maintaining their standard of living, we're going to get that benefit as well. So demand I'm expecting to either hold or actually go higher as we go forward. And just quickly on the Aussie dollar, you've spoke, spoken to some experts in this field. What are you hearing about what the Aussie dollar might do. Yes. So the forecast is on the back of, you know, a slower China economy is that today's Aussie that sits at about 64 and a half could within 10 years be as low as 40 cents. Now, Matt, that's a big call, I realise. And, you know, it's a mugs game trying to uh, forecast the Aussie dollar. But when you look at the principles behind that, and once again, look at history in which Japan and that lost decade of slow growth, we saw the Aussie dollar fall 19, 19% back then. And yet when we look at you know the importance of Japan, so it's a role reversal. Japan back then was critical to Australia's economy. Well, today, it's the reverse. China is critical, but Japan made up 
27% of our exports back then. And today, China makes up close to 35, 36% of our exports. So it's this role reversal. And I think it's quite possible that a 35% drop in the Aussie dollar is actually achievable given what we've learned in the past and our strong dependence upon China today. What do you think of that? An Aussie dollar, 40 cents. That's Simon Quilty from Global Agri-Trends. He was speaking with Matt Bryan and that is his tip. So we were talking at the beginning there around China's imports of Australian red meat. So far this year, from January to July, China has been Australia's largest customer for red meat, importing more than 210,000 tonnes, which is up almost 50% year on year. The next biggest customer has been the US, which has imported around 167,000 tonnes of red meat. But what do you reckon? 40 cent Australian dollar, zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Very keen to hear your thoughts on that. It's 14 past 12. Data from the ABS is suggesting after years of rebuilding, Australia's cattle herd has now moved into a liquidation phase, meaning the herd size is now getting smaller. This is based off the ratio of female cattle getting slaughtered, which last year rose above, sorry, last quarter rose above that magic mark of 47%. But according to Meat and Livestock Australia's Stephen Bignall, it's not as clear cut as that. It's significant that we did pop over that 47% uh, female slaughter ratio uh, moment in, in quarter two. But um, for the annual figure, when we look at the whole financial year of financial year 2023, the annual figure was 44.2, so still well below that 47%, which means that the herd out of the financial year was still growing. But we will monitor it to make sure how it tracks in quarter three and quarter four, and if they the, court, the female slaughter ratios in those quarter remain above 47%, then we will definitely enter into a period of liquidation, but it's too early to tell just off one quarter. Given the outlook is for dry conditions in spring and in summer, it would seem unlikely that this female slaughter rate trend would reverse, yes? It is too early off, off one quarter, but I, I suppose the thing is that we've looked at is we've actually looked at it on an individual state basis, so it's actually not a uniform picture. So um, it's at, sitting at 48% the female slaughter ratio in New South Wales, but in a state like Queensland, where a large majority of, of the herd is located, that is actually, the female slaughter rate there is actually 39%, so well, it's got a three in front of it. So it depends on the dynamics in each individual state. In MLA's cattle projections in the middle of the year, it was forecasting the herd to to grow over the next couple of years, going beyond 29 million head in 2025. Do you think that forecast is still correct? Like I said, so, so the annual uh, F female slaughter rate for 2023 financial year was still at 44.2, so we're still technically in a rebuild. We'll monitor that, and if the female slaughter rate does continue above 47 percent for the um, september quarter then we will update our projections yeah in the uh for, for our release in january 2024 so we will go in there and revise them based on the change in the female slaughter aid and, and conditions we did know that a lot of those older cows that were used as the real 
um, powerhouse for the rebuild that we've gone through will um, enter the market as those sort of um, poor calves and those calves are on ground. We did know that those cattle would enter the market and we are seeing that in this female slaughter rate that we're sitting at at the moment. And can we just quickly talk about sheep and lambs? Have I got this right that Australia slaughtered almost 5 million sheep in the first half of this year, which is up 2 million head on the same period last year? Is that correct? That is correct. So that's what the ABS figures show, is that sheep slaughter is up 68% compared, or as you said, 2 million head on last year. And that is definitely driving and, and having an impact on what we're seeing in the sheep price in the, in the sheep market. And from a lamb perspective, we had record lamb meat production last year in, in calendar year 2022. To the same time in the middle of the year last year, we're, we're currently in this year, 7.7% above where we were last year. So if you think about that, we had record lamb production last year and we're actually already 7.7% above that this, for this time in, uh, in 2023. So we can expect record lamb production this year and that's in line with our projections. And so when the spring flush really kicks into gear, what do you expect prices to do? Prices for lamb have been depressed at the moment and that comes back again to that supply. We've seen it in mutton um, and we've seen it in lambs. So there's a lot of at lambs and, and sheep in, in paddock. So we expect um, while that supply remains up that the prices will be depressed. It's, it it's again comes back a bit like the cattle market to just that excess supply. And in terms of those big numbers of sheep, I assume they're all heading to the sale yards, not because the prices are good, but because they've got to go. Yeah, and it's, it's a bit similar to what we're seeing with the, the cows that were um, used to power that, that herd rebuild. When we look at the sheep mark, the sheep um, sector, a lot of those ewes were held for one or two years to get an extra lamb out. And so those um, ewes are now hitting the market and it, it coming, it's coming to a point in the sheep market where have the, the sort of question is, have we reached the, the sort of threshold of where the, the flock can go? And those um, excess animals are now hitting the market. Meat and Livestock Australia's Stephen Bignall speaking with Matt Bran on sheep and cattle slaughter numbers right across Australia. It's 19 past 12. You're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Now, when you think about mining in Western Australia, you probably think of gold, or in my case, standing in Port Hedland, it's definitely iron ore. But as the world strives to decarbonise, critical minerals are increasingly gathering the attention of investors. And as Tara DeLangraft reports, that's changing dynamics within the industry. For the first time in the 32-year history of Kalgoorlie's Diggers and Dealers Mining Forum, Gold wasn't the number one commodity on the speaker program at last week's conference. Held in the historic gold mining community, critical minerals like lithium and rare earths were the talk of the town. But with gold prices remaining high and miners producing good results, what more can they do to garner the favour of investors? Especially seeing as according to mining industry consultant Dr Sandra Close, Australia may actually be the world's biggest miner of new gold. And if you look at newly mined gold only, you don't look at scrap gold or recycled gold or gold imported to be refined, but just that which is newly mined. As far as we can see, Australia is in fact on top. We produced 313 tonnes of gold in Australia last year in 2022 
and there's a Serbit and Associates numbers, so we know where that, that all comes from, and it's all newly mined gold. But I think it says a lot for the Australian gold industry that uh, we're still churning out a great deal of gold, and of course, these days, it's worth about $30 billion a year, which is an enormous help to our balance of trade. As the globe continues to decarbonise and there's so much focus on battery metals going green, I mean, do you feel like some of the shine has gone away from, from gold? Because it does seem that those, those battery metals, they're, they're what's in vogue. That's what people are interested in the moment. Do you feel that, that shine's coming off gold a little bit? Oh, yes, but there's always different metals in vogue. I've been around so long, I can remember the ins and outs of very different ones. I started off in the old nickel boom in the 60s, and there's been a lot of ups and downs since then, and we're seeing another one, although I must say the shift, if you like, to renewables is a, a, probably a one-way shift in many, in many instances. And for gold, it's a bit counter to a lot of other things, uncertainty, gold thrives on uncertainty. When people are uncertain, there's nothing like this physical thing that you can uh, hold in your hand or hide and use as a store of wealth when you need it. Well, the investor appetite for critical minerals is having an impact on smaller gold miners and explorers who are shaking the tin to get going on projects, according to Warren Pierce from industry advocacy group AMIC. He says while some of the gold sector are feeling a bit like the poor cousin to critical minerals, prices are still good and the buoyancy is actually giving some companies the opportunity to pivot or diversify. I mean, it's pretty obvious that critical minerals are the um, uh, topic of the day and certainly you can see companies in the lithium space and other critical minerals as well going particularly well. Um, I think, you know, traditionally Diggers and Dealers has been a conference that's got a lot of gold players and a lot of attention for, uh, for gold equities. I think, um, you know, they're going through a period of a bit of uncertainty. Gold price is good, um, but gold equities aren't quite see- seeing the love yet. Um, so there's a bit of a bit of trepidation around that, and I think a lot of members are asking um, when will uh, the investment return, uh, and obviously we're hopeful that will be soon. Um, but if that doesn't occur, I think you'll start to see a bit of a slowdown in that part of the industry. That said, um, the critical minerals demands look uh, very strong. Uh, so um, you know, the companies in that space, and certainly you're seeing a lot of companies start to pivot towards some of those opportunities. And, uh, and find investor support for that too. So I think, you know, it's always a mix. It's a very big industry, lots of different minerals, lots of different players. It's very rare that everyone's going extremely well or everyone's going badly. It's a bit of a mix. Some players are getting the benefits of, uh, of, of some tailwinds and some are running as headwinds at the moment. Does gold sort of feel like it is a bit of a poor cousin at the moment? Because, I mean, for so long, I, and we're talking centuries, it, 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 it has been that, you know, for want of a better word, shining light. Look, they're feeling a bit unloved at the moment. Um, And the reason is, if you track back over a long period of time, gold price and gold equities have gone together. Gold price goes up, gold equities go up. Gold price goes down, gold equities go down. For the first time in maybe 50 years, there's actually a diversion. The gold price is going very strong, but gold equities aren't seeing the love, and that's a bit strange. Um, I think... Ultimately, we come down to some sort of concerns around the global economy and where that's going. Gold's not going away. Um, the reality is um, gold's been, a, been, been the standard for, 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 for a lot of reasons. And ultimately, um, uh, investors will find as they look to protect their investments. Um, and, uh, and so we're not, not concerned about it. Um, but yeah, right now, they're not, not feeling quite as loved as the others. So how is the bigger end of town faring? 
Well, it's a case of keep your head down and continue grafting, according to Managing Director and CEO of Gold Road Resources, Duncan Gibbs. The company owns the Gruyere Gold Mine, about 1,200 kilometres northeast of Perth, and he says the cyclical nature of the game will see gold glitter again one day soon. Yeah, we're kind of the poor cousins, I guess. I mean, the, the, certainly the mood of this conference, certainly around lithium, uh, there's been a lot of vibe around battery metals and to some extent rare earths, of course, in, in kind of the last year. And, uh, probably a lack of funding available to junior explorers in, in, in particular. Of course, as a, as a producer, it's a bit of a different space. I mean, the gold price is still pretty strong. You know, we are a cyclical business, but I think, you know, the, the macroeconomic environment, I think, for gold will be more favourable next year. You have to take a long-term view. I mean, the reality between uh, you know, making a, a discovery and putting a mine into production, people used to talk to five years. It's probably closer to ten these days. So you have to be prepared to take a longer-term view rather than just purely trying to be at the right point in the cycle. Gold's obviously stood the test of time over centuries, especially here where we are in, in Kalgoorlie, Boulder. We're hearing so much that it's, I suppose, you know, that, that lithium hub at the moment. I mean, do you feel like gold will ever rise to the top or we're sort of in a new age and a new era where you do have to share the spotlight a little with some of these newer metals and minerals. Yeah but I mean lithium you know it's not like people look at lithium as a thing of beauty right whereas that's the position that gold's had it's always been valued as a, you know one as a store of value and two as something that you know people wear for fashion you know they wear it as a ring as a symbol of love all these kind of things. Nobody's going to propose to their dearly beloved with a lithium ring, right? You know, I, I think gold's always going to have that place. You know, lithium is clearly about the decarbonisation. You know, people starting to drive electric cars, of course, your mobile phone. Uh, you know, all these things are around that the use of lithium as a commodity. And, uh, you know, right now, of course, we're in a sort of supply-demand imbalance. But, but ultimately, uh, companies will be successful in finding lithium mines... And lithium will, uh, you know, the, the heady prices that we see now will eventually moderate. It's just, you know, how long does that take before the, the mine discoveries and the uh, supply of lithium catches back to the demand? But, it, but it'll happen. That's CEO of Gold Road Resources, Duncan Gibbs. He was ending that story from Tara DeLangraft about that shift from gold being the headline, all the spotlight, particularly at diggers and dealers, and now those critical minerals taking over. It's 27 past 12. Off to the newsroom shortly, and then you'll hear from the Bureau of Meteorology for a check-in of the weather for the next couple of days. Fertiliser Australia has approached the federal government with a proposal which would help it meet targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It's to do with a more efficient use of nitrogen fertiliser. The proposal includes fertiliser pre-coated with a nitrification inhibitor which is more expensive than standard fertiliser. Fertiliser Australia Chief Executive Stephen Annells says maybe an incentive scheme could be implemented to encourage farmers to buy these types of products. In Canada, they cut 30% of emissions from fertiliser by basically cutting 30% of nitrogen fertiliser. So we see some more nuanced ways of being able to achieve the uh, federal government's uh, carbon emission targets. So we put this proposal forward to uh, Chris Bowen's office and to the Prime Minister's office and to uh, the Agriculture Minister's office. 
in the hope that we could we could open up a dialogue about a new, more nuanced way to be able to reduce emissions, and that's through treated urea largely. And that proposal basically is, is a proposal to attempt to make treated urea fertilisers cheaper and more accessible to uh, growers. And what we want to do is, is assist the government to be able to achieve its um, its emissions targets at the same time as, as not limiting Australia's production and, and, and export potential. So the pre-coated fertiliser, as opposed to standard, what are, what are the benefits of that, but particularly from an environmental perspective? It can have two effects. The first one uh, is, is quite relevant up in the Great Barrier Reef catchment zone where it can reduce the amount of uh, nitrate produced and time the amount of nitrate produced is probably the better way of saying it, to the point where when the plant is growing, largely sugarcane, it can take up that nitrate rather than that nitrate going through the soil and getting into the water system. But other treatments of, uh, of urea uh, also stop the volatilisation to nitrous oxide and to ammonia. And nitrous oxide is uh, quite a potent uh, greenhouse gas. Is there quite a big price difference between purchasing the pre-coated as opposed to the standard? I look, it sort of ranges depending on the product, but it can be an additional 30 to um, up to, I've heard some people talk about $60 per tonne, depending on the, on the product. But urea and other fertilisers can see that sort of fluctuation anyway. So it's, it's sort of within that range. But look, at what it does, it just allows a, a way for growers to continue to use fertilisers and continue to produce the, the crops and the, uh, and the products they do that, that largely end up in, in, in Australia's exports. How do you see an incentive working for farmers to take this up? Would it need an incentive for farmers to, to take this up? I'm not, sure, I'm not sure. I don't know how to answer that question. I'm not sure what the, uh, where, where the incentives would work, but certainly it would make it a lot more attractive to a grower to take that up. Uh, it depends on how the government actually approaches the, uh, the, the matter, whether they say you must use treated fertilisers or you, you, know, you can voluntarily use them. Obviously, that price difference does make a difference to the, to the, to the cost of inputs. Um, but it also assists that long-term protection of the farmer's social licence to use fertiliser. You mentioned there what other countries have done in this area. Why wouldn't their approach work here in Australia? I understand that comes down to, you know, I guess just essentially the type of soil that we're using. It, it's quite different. Look, it is. And look, Australia's quite unique. It certainly is very different to Canada. When In Canada, they will um, plant a crop and it sits under snow for a couple of months and then grows. A lot of Australia's particularly cropping could, could almost be said is it, we, we do it on the edge of a desert. We have a very, very different system and we also have very, very good fa- farmers here in Australia. We are already very, very efficient uh, and our nutrient use efficiency is already very high. Um, so if they were to go and apply um, the remedies that I put in in Canada, it would have detrimental effects because... Uh, we're already very, very efficient. So basically all you're doing is just taking away food for plants and you'd, you'd see sizable re- reductions in yield. Fertiliser Australia Chief Executive Stephen Annell speaking to Selena Green. And on the topic of inputs, uh, earlier we were also speaking about a potential drop in the Australian dollar down to potentially around 40 cents. And Peter in Manjmup says if we did get down to an Australian dollar trading at 40 US cents, just imagine the input price rise for imported things needed in farming today. 
Um, yeah, good point, Peter. The inputs are already pinching, that is for sure. It's 28 to 1 on the country hour. Garrett Mundy is here with the news headlines. Garrett? Thanks, Michelle. In the news, federal police say they're continuing to search for members of a criminal syndicate involved in the importation of more than half a tonne of cocaine to WA. It's alleged the drugs were dropped into the ocean off WA's Midwest coast from a bulk carrier before being collected and taken ashore. Three Queensland men have been charged. A cereal drink driver involved in the death of a Perth schoolgirl two decades ago is being extradited to WA after he allegedly skipped bail on fresh drink driving related charges. Mitchell Walsh had a blood alcohol level three times over the legal limit when he ran over 10-year-old Jess Meehan in 2003. He was found not guilty of causing her death. Two warrants were issued for Walsh's arrest on new charges early last year. He was arrested in Sydney this morning. And West Coast coach Adam Simpson says he hasn't received any clarity around his position as pressure mounts on the AFL club. Speculation about Simpson's future is swirling with the Eagles reportedly reaching out to former IT players Dean Cox and Don Pike about returning. They're both currently employed by the Sydney Swans. More news, Michelle, at one o'clock. Thank you very much, Garrett. This week on Landline, innovating how water is used to grow cotton. I believe that you can go from 10 people to one in a comparison, you know, so 10% of your previous labour force. And the women who started a rugby carnival to get the kids to visit home. They were all away working, but they, they love coming home and it was a reason to come home and they love playing rugby. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. And you'll hear more about that rather innovative cotton story before one o'clock today. Uh, but at 26 to 1, let's head to the Bureau of Meteorology. Angeline Prasad is with you. How are things looking in the south of the state, Angeline? Good afternoon, Michelle. We're going to expect uh, uh, experience spring-like weather over the next few days um, with a firm ridge of high pressure settling across the south of the state uh, for agricultural areas. There might be some patchy frost in the morning where temperatures uh, dip below about two degrees um, in the morning. Uh, we will see extensive fog areas as well, morning fog areas across much of the southwest land division and adjacent uh, gold fields um, and into the Eucla. Um, showers over the next couple of days will be confined to just to, just to the south coast and will be fairly light. The next cold front uh, that is going to arrive on the southwest coast is going to be later Sunday and this cold front is expected to be quite weak. So we will see some showers developing on the southwest coast and potentially extend uh, to south of um, Durian Bay to Lake Grace to Israelite Bay on Monday. But again, uh, sort of, um, a couple of moderate falls on the south and southwest coast, uh, generally a few millimetres, and through those inland agricultural areas, I'm not going to see much rainfall. Um, so... Uh, less than 0.5 millimetres in most areas. Now that cold front will clear off to the east later Monday. Uh, we might see another very weak cold front brush past the south coast um, on Tuesday and into Wednesday. Again, showers are going to be mainly confined to the south, southwest coast and adjacent inland areas, not really expanding further inland. So fairly benign conditions for the next um, uh, six or seven days, Michelle, uh, with, uh, with very warm temperatures developing from next week. So this weekend, temperatures generally a few degrees above average, about two to six, but middle of next week, we'll see temperatures much higher ahead of potentially the next major cold front, which may arrive later next week. So temperatures sort of middle of next week getting 
maybe up to six to ten degrees above average. So we'll surely get a taste of spring uh, over the next seven days. How about in the north of the state, also relatively benign? Yes. Uh, so um, the firm ridge of high pressure that's developing across the south of the state is uh Directing a dry, fresh and gusty southeasterlies across the northern parts of the state, so the Pilbara, the interior, and also uh, the southern parts of the Kimberley and through the Gascoigne uh, as well. So um, dry conditions are expected to prevail uh, well into next week across the north. Uh, the, the windy conditions are expected to ease uh, from Sunday onwards, but I'm not expecting any rain in the north uh, for the next seven days at least it's going to be typical dry season conditions in the north and any warnings about the state today there's dry uh, and gusty conditions are causing um, extreme fire dangers through the headland uh, fire district today so there is a fire weather warning out for the district over the next few days with those uh, windy conditions persisting especially during the morning period we will see elevated fire dangers across the north but generally staying high those fire dangers should ease uh, from sunday onwards apart from that we have got coastal wind warnings out uh, from the west pilbara coast to the west kimberley coast today Thank you very much for that, Angeline Prasad. And if you are in the Pilbara, you will get the latest on that bushfire which is burning around Marble Bar. It's 23 to 1 on the country hour. No rainfall to mention, um, nothing over a mil or two right across the state. ABC Radio, fire ban information. Yeah, due to the risk of a fire, the total fire ban is in place for today for the area around Port Headland. So during a total fire ban, you can't light fires for cooking or camping. You're not allowed to carry out hot work such as grinding or welding. No off-road driving using a four-wheel drive or a quad bike, except for agricultural purposes. If you're not sure what you can and can't do during a total fire ban, just go to the DFES website. So just search DFES. And WA, and you should find it. Total fire bans are all up there. And your local government may issue a vehicle movement or harvest ban, so you must check with them to see if there are any additional restrictions in place. So, just repeating, a total fire ban's in place for today for Port Hedland. And if you need any more information as well, you can go to Emergency WA. And uh, Michelle, Interestingly enough, the top rainfall figure in the last 24 hours up until 9am was four mils at Rotto. Who'd have thought? Oh, there you go. <laughs> I'm sure there was um, plenty, plenty of liquid around Rottnest Island, um, not just in the rainfall. I'm thinking also in the bar, and obviously it is an island. Um, thank you for that, Richard. Hope you have a, a good weekend this weekend, like last weekend. We won't bring that up, though. Uh, it's 21 to 1. On ABC Radio WA, you're with Michelle Stanley. For the WA Country Hour. Talking about plenty of liquid in the bars, the Sydney Wine Show has just announced its list of best wines from their 2022 vintage right across Australia. And I have a feeling some WA wines might have come out on top. There are plenty of wine awards in Australia, but as David Clawton explains, this one is worth paying attention to. 
1,800 wineries from around Australia entered the Sydney Wine Show this year. It's run by the Royal Agricultural Society, which uses a large number of judges, including an international guest this time from the UK. They're doing blind tastings, so they don't know where the wines come from, and decisions are based on taste alone. Sarah Crow is the Chair of Judges, and I asked her who won Best in Show, which is picked from the top wines from the red, white and sparkling categories. We had a beautiful, pristine, sparkling, this lovely, complex, yet restrained Chardonnay, and then this wonderfully fragrant, silky Pinot Noir. And I wasn't really sure which way all the judges were going to vote, and it was it was relatively tight across all of those. But this year it's gone to the 2021 Evans & Tate Red Rook Estate Chardonnay from Margaret River. A shardy. Yeah. It's funny that Chardonnay just seems to go from strength to strength in our country. We've certainly gone from this, like, ABC, anything but Chardonnay commentary to it represents extremely good value for money, extremely good quality wine. They stand up proudly, shoulder to shoulder, with the best Chardonnays internationally. So... So maybe we need to go back and have another look at Chardonnay, eh? Oh, I've been, I've been having another look at Chardonnay for years myself. And Evans and Tate, well known. Really well known. You know, they, they have these resources behind them. You know, they can really hone in and, and make these amazing quality blends at relatively reasonable prices. And best red? It's a 2022 Montalto Pennon Hill Pinot Noir. And was that a surprise, a Pinot Noir, not a Shiraz or a, a bigger, fuller-bodied wine? Oh, no, I think, well, in particular, the, the Pinots that we saw this year from the 2022 vintage was super impressive. And for a long time, Tassie Pinot's been winning a lot of these Pinot trophies. And I think, you know, Tassie needs to watch out. Like, the rest of Australia is coming for them with Pinot Noir <laughs> from 2022. So look out. Well, they're still... Producing the best sparkling, yeah. House of Arras won the sparkling uh, best white or rosé. Yes, yes, that's a that's a, actually that's a stunning wine. Um, it's a 2015 vintage. It, so that's been that's been laid down for quite a while. That one. Yes, it has. So that came out of the 30 months or more on tirage, which means that it spent at least 30 months on its secondary yeast leaves in bottle. You know, that's a real investment in time and actually I suspect that wine has spent a lot more than than 30 months uh, on its yeast leaves just the the complexity but the freshness in that wine but that's a $90 bottle of wine so that's that's a fair investment yeah that's true but it's a 2015 vintage so if we think about it they've actually they spent a year growing that probably a year making it they've been holding on to that wine letting it get better for nine years now Sarah Crow, who's a winemaker herself from the Yarra Valley. International judge Clara Rubin was impressed by the shift away from the dominant grape varieties Australia's become well known for to some really interesting varieties that are being used to make some great blended wines. The world sent Australia a message, which is, thanks for all the Shiraz and Chardonnay. That was great. (laughs) Do you have anything else? Um, And you guys said yes. Uh, And the diversity of varieties that I see, I mean, we've judged... Gamay's next to Malbec's next to Sangiovese's next to, I mean, there was a Graciano, there was a Durif, which is Petit Syrah, and, I mean, just an amazing variety. 
Clara Rubin is the head of wine for the Hawksmoor Restaurant Group, which is a UK steakhouse with over 150 wines on their list. She says consumption of wine is falling globally as consumers worry about the health aspect of alcohol. So she thinks winemakers need to aim for quality and maturity. Drink less, drink better. So don't be afraid to keep some of your stock to sell later. The French refer to the English palate as a bit of a necrophiliac palate. We, I, would, I would disagree with that. That doesn't sound complimentary. No, it isn't. What do they mean by that? That's just, you know, jocular and jovial. But what they mean by that is we have a taste for the more mature wines. Right. Not quite dead, I would, I would, I would argue that one. But I think, I think what is correct is we love to see maturity in the glass. Not dust, not dead, but maturity. Um, How much later? Well, for example, I spent a few days in the Hunter and they were looking at their 2023s and releasing them and some of the wiser producers are, aren't going to release that for seven years, which is perfect. Hunter winemaker Mike DeJulius says keeping your wine for a few years is tough on the bottom line. Yeah, that's the, the age-old debate, but yeah, it is such a financial burden to store them, to bottle them um, and to sit on them for five, six, seven, ten years sometimes waiting to release them. He was a judge at the wine show as well and is excited about some of the new grape varieties coming through. Um, there's been some Sangiovese that I've seen that oh, was... I've heard that mentioned a few times. Yeah, it was a really good one popped up. Um, Grenache that came up um, that was really bright and fresh. The one that got me that I saw today that I hadn't seen in the, in the show week as we've been going is a Grüneveltliner. Um, is that German? Uh, yes, uh, white, um, really dry, lovely acid line, really sort of chalky uh, minerality to it was beautiful wine. The best small producer award went to Liz and Sean Silkman in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales for their 2022 Silkman Wines Reserve Chardonnay. And the best value wine was judged to be a 2022 Millbrook Regional GSM, that's a blend of Grenache, Thiraz and Mouvedre, produced at Jarradale in the Perth Hills. WA with the goods. That was David Clawton with that report on the Sydney Wine Show. And you can read more about those wines and the winners on the ABC Rural website. Take a note. Next time you come to dinner, I'm after that Millbrook GSM. That'll be good. It's quarter to one on the Country Hour. Michelle Stanley along this afternoon. Relationships with partners and family members is emerging to emerging as a key risk to farming businesses. That's been one of the findings from a farmer survey done by Birchip Cropping Group. BCG's Senior Research Manager, Dr Yolanda Plowman, says she wasn't expecting relationships to pop up so high in the risk factors. Initially, when I talked to farmers about this project and I tried to understand what the risks were that they identified, things like, you know, um, urea decisions or input decisions came up initially. But then when I took the time to meet with our advisory committees, which are grower committees essentially, what really came out of that as the key take-home message was relationships being one of the key areas for risk management for a farm and that you know when it came up it was in the context of relationship with your partner and your immediate family and if those relationships are strong decision making and risk mitigation on farm becomes much more straightforward if there are tensions or issues in your close relationships well, everything falls apart from there and risk becomes much harder to manage. So all of those risks that filter in underneath that I started talking about, like resourcing, 
inputs, et cetera, et cetera, all of those decisions become much harder if your relationships with significant people in your life and yourself aren't healthy, essentially. And that was a real surprise because that hadn't come up for me before. You know, there was a real focus on the nuts and bolts of on-farm activities and less of a focus on mental health and relationships. And in terms of what underpins healthy relationships, were you getting feedback about work-life balance and, and concerns perhaps that that work-life balance isn't there and farms now are, are bigger than ever and perhaps people just don't uh, are working all the time and don't have that time outside of work with their families? Yes, and that work-life balance that you're talking about has come up again and again. It's really been flagged so heavily as something that's really creating issues over time. You know, I think we we are all getting busier and I've talked to farmers recently in the last few weeks about exactly this. You know, farmers are getting busier. Um, you know, farms are getting bigger in some respects and even the farms that aren't getting bigger, there's just seems to be more to do, more to stay on top of. So managing that work-life balance was flagged by farmers as something to keep an eye on. And I think it might be worth noting as well, it may perhaps be a generational thing. You know, some of the farmers who flagged that, they were on their way towards handing the farm off to the next generation. And perhaps this was a bit more of a reflective thing for them. But we are seeing as well with younger farmers, you know, that kind of realisation that work-life balance is really key for managing risk. I did see an interesting discussion playing out on social media back in at sowing time when people were saying, oh, I, I can't knock off sowing until the, I see the neighbour's lights go out, even if that is two, three o'clock in the morning. Was that yeah. something that people talked about, about uh, feeling that, uh, that pressure to, to keep up with what other people are doing? It did come up as a, an important topic when we were discussing these issues with our advisory committees. It is something that I'm considering heavily for this project in terms of how stress and external pressure drives your decision making and the way that you're assessing risk. So, you know, if you're making a decision from um, a healthier mindset, would you make the same decision? And the answer is probably no. If you're feeling stressed, if you're feeling pressure or you're feeling that you're falling short, we can kind of become derailed in our decision making. And that's, that's a really important theme that BCG is going to be focusing on for the RiskWise project. Dr. Yolanda Plowman is a Senior Research Manager at the Birdship Cropping Group. She was speaking with Angus Varley about the research they're doing as part of the GRDC's RiskWise project. 10 to 1 on the Country Hour. You'll get the details of the wool market shortly. It is down slightly again this week. Danny Burkett will be along with a rundown of the prices before the one o'clock news. But some of Australia's cotton growers are switching to a bankless system. I'm not talking about where they deposit or borrow their money from. Cotton growers have used siphons for years to transfer water from channels over a bank onto the crop. They're cheap and low tech, but they're also labour intensive because during the irrigation season, they have to be started and stopped by hand around the clock. But as Landline's Pip Courtney found out, cotton growers have figured out how they can operate without banks and siphons and improve yields. Talk about a win-win. 
For decades, one of the most tedious jobs on a cotton property has been doing the siphons. It's a simple system using air pressure and gravity to move water from a channel, over a bank and down furrows to water cotton plants. Siphons are cheap and portable, but also a very labour-intensive way to irrigate. The rural labour shortage and water savings are pushing more growers to retire siphons and go bankless. This means removing the bank and levelling the paddock so water flows under its own momentum along the furrows. I believe that you can go from 10 people to one in a comparison, you know, so 10% of your previous labour force. So, yeah, unbelievable for labour side of it. At St George, six hours west of Brisbane, Scott Brimblecombe has converted 80% of his 460 hectare farm. To be perfectly honest, I don't think we'd ever get away from siphons, but we'll be going to 100% bankless as soon as we practically can. And were your staff really upset that they won't have to do siphon runs anymore? I've got a bloke that has been working for our family for over 40 years and he's happy to see the siphons go, to be quite honest. Going bankless has delivered significant water savings, around one and a half megalitres a hectare. It's not automated, so he's still turning water on and off at night, but it's just a few winches, not hundreds of siphons. Once we get semi-automation with the winders in and full automation, I believe that we can go over two megalitres a hectare water saving. If we're saving two megalitres a hectare, I can go and apply it to another crop so I can put in a winter crop or I can expand my acres, I can grow more cotton. And we'll have the same 50 megs running through as over in the next door. Irrigation designer Glenn Lyons pioneered bankless design around his home base of St George. It's exciting because it's 20 years of work that's now coming to fruition and really starting to get out there. In the early days, what did farmers think? Did they go, <laughs> never work? Or were they like, wow, that's worth watching? Mostly never work, yeah. So they were sceptics? Yeah, but that's OK. And there was a, one or two got on the boat for me and uh, allowed me to uh, design their system for them to get it going. The system gives growers more control over water application, especially reducing overwatering, where water goes beyond the plant's roots where it can't be used. Because the crop effectively stops growing for the time that the, the water's saturated. So the minimal time that you can have the water saturated, the, the better growth you'll have from your crop. That's irrigation designer Glenn Lyons who will feature on the ABC's Landline program on Sunday at half past 12 or you can also watch it back on iView after that time. It's six to one on the country hour. Now I'm sure some fruit growers have been trying to figure out whether they'll be affected by this week's news regarding the pesticide dimethoate. Uh, we heard earlier in the week about the APVMA um, considering a suspension of the use of dimethoate for a post-harvest dip. Now, WA's Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development has clarified a few things this morning. In a statement, Deepard says, if the APVMA does suspend the use of dimethoate for post-harvest treatment of fruits with inedible peel, this would impact WA imports of mangoes, as well as some avocado varieties and mandarins. To preserve WA's area freedom status for Queensland fruit fly, WA import conditions would require these fruit undergo alternative treatments to protect our horticulture industry. The statement says alternative treatments may include methyl bromide, irradiation, vapour heat treatment and water immersion. Deepard's understanding is that bananas can 
currently have dimethoate dip, but they're normally brought into WA in a hard green condition, which means they don't require the use of dimethoate in, as the post-harvest uh, post dip. The statement says honeydew and rock melons can also currently have dimethoate dip, but they're not likely to be impacted when consigned under alternative options. And Depot doesn't believe pineapples would be impacted. It'll be interesting to see, though, what happens to the price of all of these fruits if that APVMA suspension is implemented. Already, I've heard some growers over east wondering whether they will send fruit to WA, particularly with mangoes. So you will, you no doubt, will hear more about this. But if you've missed any of our coverage, just have a listen to Tuesday's Country Hour on the ABC Listen app. Our reporter, Alice Marshall, explained it all very well at the start of the program. You can get the Country Hour podcast wherever you get your podcast, but also on the ABC Listen app. It's four minutes to one. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Veterans gather in Canberra to mark 50 years since the official end of Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War. The last waltz for the Matildas in the Women's World Cup. Can they defeat Sweden this weekend as they finish their record-breaking run? An African cuisine a long way from home. You'll meet a Kenyan chef bringing new life to a tiny South Australian town. Those stories and more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. The wool market closed slightly down again this week. The East was down 13 to close at 1163 cents per kilogram clean and the West was down 12 to close at 13.20 cents. Danny Burkett, can you run us through the prices, please? Yeah, we had two more days of falls in the wool market. And if you look at it in US terms, uh, the fall in the exchange rate certainly didn't help the market because in US, the, the indicator fell 21 cents. In Fremantle over the two days, 18 micron fell 20 cents to close at 15.35. 19 microns closed at night at 14.40. That was off 10 for the week. 20 microns were off five. They did have a slight recovery on the second day, but they are quoted 13.75 on the close. 21s, 13.40 off 10. 22s off 20 to close at $13 flat. Pieces and bellies, the fine end, minus five. The mediums to broads, minus 10. That was regardless of VM. However, VM persists in the fleece wool and becomes still an issue in the wool market. If we look through the three centres, Sydney is averaging 3.2%, Melbourne 28 and if we look here in Fremantle or the West, 1.9%. So across the board, VM is averaging 28 through all the centres. So as I said, VM persisting, as are the discounts. If we look at the differential in price between a 17 and 21 micron merino fleece wool, it is $3.60 clean. And historically, that still sits above the average. Other thing to note in the market at the moment is as we move on, some of the reoffered wools from last season with the lower yields are starting to come back onto the market. These also are receiving discounts. So the discounts that we saw probably three to four months ago for lower yielding high VM wools are still persisting. Who are the buyers this week? Danny, any surprises? No surprises in the buyers. We just simply had a rearrangement of the top three. Tech wool trading taking roughly 20% of the merino fleece wool through the three centres. TNU 15%. PJ Morris, West Australian based business 12%. And Endeavour wool exports 10%. 
And if we break that down, if we look at that into what country was buying, we could say China, 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 and China. If we look at the overall percentages this far, um, this season, China's taking 81% of the offerings, India 6%, Italy 4%, Czech Republic 2%. Just an interesting note, we're all already $56 million behind this time last year in the wool clear to the wool trade. So no surprises, even though the market, the Chinese have slowed down, it is still a Chinese dominated wool market. Oh, wow. Uh, and how about next week? What are you expecting? The next week we have what we call Wool Week, which are attendees from across the country um, all flock to Melbourne. So consequently, there is no sale in Fremantle next week. There's just shy of 40,000 bars being offered between Sydney and Melbourne. If we see this exchange rate continue to fall, I'd probably suggest that would be about the only bright spark we could see at the wool market. Very little business being written up forward. The forward market for wool is absolutely showing no response to what's going on at the minute. There's nothing out forward. So all we can hope for is a falling exchange rate. Thanks, Danny. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.